Welcome to the Lifestyle Investor Podcast. Imagine being able to earn passive income, build long-term wealth, while gaining total freedom from your business or job. That's what lifestyle investing is all about. I'm your host, Justin Donald, and in less than two years, my investments drove enough passive income for both my wife and me to quit our jobs. And now, I want to show you how to do the same. I want to teach you how to create wealth without creating a job. You'll learn the exact same investment strategies I use to multiply my net worth to over eight figures all before the age of 40. If you want to learn all about low-risk cash flow investing, achieve financial freedom, and live the life you truly desire, this podcast is going to show you exactly how to do it. Today, I'm talking to Don Wenner, who is a master of scaling high-growth, high-profit entrepreneurial companies. Don is the founder and CEO of DLP Real Estate Capital, a leader in the residential real estate sectors of investment management, lending, asset management, property management, construction, home building, and brokerage. Using the elite execution system, Don led the DLP real estate capital family of companies to over $1 billion in assets under management and over $100 million in annual revenues in less than 10 years. He has been teaching this system to a select group of private clients who have revolutionized their businesses, and he shares the complete blueprint to his success in his upcoming book, Building an Elite Organization. During our discussion, we cover, one, the major benefits to buying a community bank, an investment secret the Federal Reserve and the OCC don't want you to know about. Two, the core values at the heart of Don's companies and how they've empowered himself and his employees to do their absolute best work. And three, the proven business methodology Don uses to achieve 60% year-over-year growth for the past 13 years. One more thing before we get into today's interview. If you haven't already, be sure to hit the subscribe button on Apple or wherever you listen so new episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. Thanks for listening. And without further delay, my conversation with Don Wenner. All right, Don, I'm so glad to have you here on the podcast. This is perfect because we've talked about it for quite some time. And I'm really excited because when we first got a chance to know one another, I just feel like there's so many similarities in our story, in how we grew up, the paths that we took, the decisions that we made. And I'm just thrilled to have you on. So welcome. Thank you, Justin. Super, super excited to be here. Uh, Can't wait to dig in. Well, we know a lot of the same people, which is fun. We were just talking you know, off air about uh, another one of our mutual friends, Hans Box, who is an earlier episode here. And you know, Hans is just an awesome guy, super smart. I know he uh, is one of your earlier investors with your company, which is cool. And uh, he's one of the guys that really introduced me to you yep. right out of the gates. So that's pretty neat. So I- I'm curious, you have a lot going on. I know you're juggling a ton. I know you've got a huge business and we can get into this. I know you just wrote a book. We can get into that. I know you've got a podcast. I mean, you are (laughs) juggling. And then there's all the other things that you do. You've got charities that you support and the list goes on and on. And I'd love to 
really dive into each of these or as many of these as we can get into. But I thought it would be fun to really just get started and maybe hear a little bit about what is new and exciting and what you're passionate about right now today. I love it. That's that's a great question. So every day, and and you know, is uh, unfortunate and blessed that you know, no, no two days are alike, and and uh, uh, they're all. Uh, well, that's not true. I mean, there's a lot of things like in terms of how you you know, and I know you're big on this as well. How I set my routines and my schedule, and a lot of that's very similar. But kind of what fills up those hours at, at work varies uh, so much. But uh, you know, exciting things is I'm hopeful today. I guess the biggest thing that's on my mind, other than being on this uh, this podcast here, is. I'm hopeful today, knock on wood, I'm signing a what's called a definitive merger agreement to buy a bank. So uh, that's been a big a big move, as we call it, uh, for the past year we've been working on. And uh, hopeful today we'll have uh, ink to, to paper and be fully executed to acquire actually a public uh, bank that will be taking private. So we're pretty, pretty excited about that. That is so cool. I, I'm, I'm thrilled and excited for you in this endeavor. And I knew about this from before because uh, when your team came to Austin, we had a chance to kind of talk about it and dig in. One of my friends who is going to be on a future episode here in a few weeks also owns his own bank. And I've been looking into it as well. And I'm excited because this is... I don't know what's going on here, but I have this eerie attraction to get people on the podcast or just talk to people literally the day (laughs) they're about to ink a deal. So this is like... Literally in the last week, maybe the last eight days, I've had three people ink <laughs> massive deals during or or like right inside the time frame that we've talked. So it's it's kind of awesome. funny. That's awesome. So what what made you want to buy a bank? I mean, I love it from an investment standpoint. It sounds brilliant. I mean, we all know that banks do very well in good times and in bad times. But what made you a want to do it and B be willing to commit the time to do it? Because it took my friend. Four years, a little over four years to get it done. Yeah, that's a great question. So I'm assuming your friend probably uh, did it in Novo Bank. Uh, would be my guess if it took him four years. But no matter which way, it's it's a long process. So we've been already, you know, probably identified the decision to buy a bank probably two years ago. It took me, you know, a year and a half to identify the right opportunity, and then you know we've been working on it now for six months to get to this point of a, a signed agreement, and then to get to the point of final. Regulatory approval is probably another six months from today, so it is a long process. But you know, to explain why we are doing a bank above and beyond simply, it's one of the best foundational investments I think that are out there, and and it's pretty cool. The other real reason is you know we it, it probably have to explain just a little bit about what we do, which is so my parent company uh, that we own is called DLP Real Estate Capital or DLP Capital for short, and and we're a family of, of businesses or divisions to the organization all centered around investing in real estate. And so we run private discretionary investment funds that invest in real estate, real estate uh, as, as an owner, equity investment, mainly in rental communities, workforce housing, rental communities, where we consider ourselves an impact investor focused on workforce housing communities that are affordable for the local workforce. And so we run and have done a number of funds focused on that. And then we run funds focused on lending capital to other real estate investors who predominantly are also investing in workforce housing, either improving, preserving, or creating new workforce housing. So we lend to guys who are flipping homes, guys who are building single-family portfolios, multifamily portfolios, or building new single-family homes or multifamily properties. So in a lot of ways, you know, we manage you know capital in, in kind of a private banking type manner, and then we lend money out to real estate investors, very similar to 
how I'd say banks used to lend to real estate investors, as many have kind of had to leave that that industry and it's moved a lot more to, to private lending over the last uh, decade. But we do a lot of these same services where at the end of the day, my world uh, here at DLP, and, and you know, we have a family of other businesses that support this from property management to construction management to a real estate brokerage, to a title company, to a marketing agency, et cetera. But really in the day, we're serving two sets of clients. We're serving high net worth, hardworking investors, entrepreneurs, small business owners, and then we're supporting and providing capital and resources and education to successful real estate operators. And uh, those two groups, what they both have very much in common is they both need the services of a good community uh, bank. So we're going to be able to service those two groups really nicely through a, a bank balance sheet, through a bank platform. So it just fits you know, really, really well with what we're, we're doing and couldn't be more excited about it. No kidding. I mean, it's a total one-two punch. There's no doubt about that. I mean, it, it makes complete and total logical sense if you're willing to jump through all the hoops that you have to jump through. There's so much more regulation yes. when you have a bank than there is to have like a private fund as you've had for years. Yep. And so I'm curious if you're willing to share any of those nuances yeah. or, or what makes it more tricky or sticky yeah, so it starts exactly like you said with with regulations. So it's uh, highly regulated by uh, you know we deal with the Federal Reserve and and the OCC are kind of the two regulatory authorities that we uh, will be dealing with. And yeah, it's it's interesting how you know the, these regulators look at things different than you you or I look at things, right? They look at well, if you're growing a business fast, that's that's a scary thing, right? That's not a good thing, right? They're very conservative and slow and methodical and. And they want banks who are slow and methodical. And, and we're certainly, and if we get into you know, our book and our approach, we're very methodical, but we're certainly not slow. Um, we, we move and, and grow uh, pretty, pretty quickly in, in whatever we put our energy and effort into. So dealing with that balance of giving the regulators the confidence that we're not going to you know, grow too fast and not be able to handle it and, uh, is interesting and how they think about your growth plan and what they want to see and what they don't want to see and and so forth. It's, it's really interesting. So what I learned also is that, and one of the reasons why there's been so few community banks that have started in so many years is the banking industry has moved in the direction where they basically promote banks buying other banks. And that's pretty much what they prefer. Those who are known to banking can continue to invest in banking. And those who are not known to the banking regulators, they don't want to know anybody new in short. So I've had to go out there and, and bring in and surround myself with people who are known to banking. So I've already hired my CEO of the bank who's run and been CEO of a couple large banks. And I've already hired a CFO who's uh, been a CFO for a much larger bank. And I've got a one of my uh, largest investors is going to be a minority partner to me in, in owning the bank. And he's owned four banks over his career. He's much older than I am. He's 82 years old, and but he's known to, to the banking regulators. And I brought in you know great legal counsel and consultants and so forth who who have gone through the process. And so uh, I've had to go through and take those steps. And, and and then there's certainly significantly more cost to how you go about compliance. And for us, one of the, the more complicated factors is we have to make sure to keep this separation between all of our existing businesses and the bank and any transactions that the two do together are going to be highly scrutinized. And you have to be willing and knowing that kind of going into it and accept kind of those additional costs and work. For the as a sacrifice to to accept that you're going to then have access to you know the the lowest source of cost of capital there is and access to the you know overnight fed and 
all the great benefits and and uh, of of owning a bank. There's you know unfortunately costs associated uh, with with those benefits that you have to kind of go into eyes wide open. Which uh, you know I believe after a couple years of a lot of research, and a lot of time, and a lot of effort. You know, we, we're, we're doing so. So, but it's exciting, and, and our investors have been very excited, and can't get here soon enough. But we know we got quite a, quite a bit of work to do yet. No kidding. Well, you know, you said something that made me think about a book that I read last year. One of my private clients in my Lions Network said, "Hey, Justin, you've got to read the book, The Myth of Capitalism: Monopolies and I've the Death it. of Competition." Yes, and so I mean, what a great book by Jonathan Tepper. And here's the deal. It talks all about how it seems like capitalism is a thing and there are, you know, monopolies are bad, but it's what you said about the banks. The banks are gobbling up the big banks by the small banks and then they control everything. And there's tons of like you think there's competition, but there's no competition. It, right. there, there's so little that you can do. I know you're a fan and, I've, and you've been quoted and referred to and, and talk about Warren Buffett. And I know one of your other guests on the podcast, I'm drawing a blank on the gentleman's name, but uh, Big Keller Williams. David Osborne. Yeah, David, you know, talked about the the Warren Buffett rules. And, you know, Warren Buffett, as is, is, is much as he's promoted as the king of capitalism, right, the greatest capitalist, he's the opposite of what people think about capitalism, right? That he only invests in industries and in companies where there's very little competition, where regulations or, or something is creating, often regulations are creating this monopoly or oligopoly or duopoly, where there's one or two or only a few companies in that in that industry, and there's this big moat that is protecting anybody else from being able to get into that that business, and that's what the regulators are doing in banking. So you you hit it exactly on the head that you know being in a business that's tough to get into, and and, and they really aren't letting anybody new into is a great time to get into the industry, especially since so few, almost every bank has been purchased by bigger banks. So the number of competition is getting smaller and smaller and smaller, and that's likely likely to continue. Yeah, you know, it's interesting to think about what that's going to look like. And by the way, there's going to be huge opportunities as you capitalize this bank. And the low-hanging fruit is, hey, why don't I just sell it and, and cash in? But it's such an integral component to what you can do with lines of credit and you know funding different deals i mean some stuff that you want to do you want the regulation other stuff you don't want the regulation so it really just is a nice addition to that war chest that that you've developed i think it's so cool you know when i think about dlp and the job that you've done building this company it's interesting because i don't know that anyone says well dlp is a household name right but in the communities that I run in, it really is. And a lot of people don't know the success, Don, that you've had building and scaling this company. And I love the market that you're in. I love that you have investment dollars that are focused on actually owning real estate, specifically multifamily, but also single family homes. And then you also have a lending arm that focuses you know, on, on that loan origination side that you can help people that are wanting to flip or improve or whatever, that maybe they can't get a standard bank loan or they have to jump through too many hoops or they can't get it inside of the time frame that they want it. And you guys are so good to your clients. And I'm going to say your clients as your borrowers, not necessarily your investors, although they're your clients too. But your your borrowers keep coming back for more and more. But I'd love to have you talk about DLP and what it stands for and what you've built it into because this is a billion dollar company and that's unbelievable. And you have built this in your what? 
34? A little older, 36. 36. (laughs) Well, anyway, anyone who is in their 30s that has built and scaled a company to over a billion dollars is doing some things right. So I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, thank you for the kind words. And, and um, yeah, I'll give you the, the little backstory to, to how it kind of came to be where we are today and, and tell you a little bit about what we, what, what, how I think about what we do today and what we're, we're, we're going to do in the future. So I you know, have a similar, you, you said on the onset, a similar background to yourself. And so I grew up in a town called Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. You may, may know it for Lehigh University or Bethlehem Steel are kind of the most common reasons people might know where Bethlehem is an hour north of Philadelphia. And you know, grew up to a set of parents who had me at 16 years old. My mom ran a home daycare and my father was a prison guard. And so, you know, very limited, you know, means. And, um, and I actually moved out of my house as a, in high school and went out on my own and, uh, put myself through school. I actually thought from eighth grade on, I thought I was going to become a financial advisor. I thought, Hey, I was really great at math and I was really entrepreneurial and that was the perfect job for me. And that's what I thought I was going to do. And, Went to, to Drexel for finance and worked at some cool companies, getting some different experience like Merrill Lynch and BlackRock and Gladry and Poland and things like that. But it was still said I was going to be an independent financial advisor. I mean, I'd wait tables on the weekends and a gentleman convinced me to come work for him, basically kept coming into the restaurant. His name was Nathan Robinson and Nathan did a couple of things. But what he hired me to do was come work in his ADT security business. And my job was you know, knocking on doors. And that's what I did all day, every day. Didn't know that's what my job was when I took the job. But what he told me is that I'd make $2,000 a week if I came to work for him selling alarm systems. And at 19, that sounded pretty good. So turns out my first paycheck was $5,280 for two weeks. That was one of my worst paychecks. I was selling a lot of alarm systems, which really just means I was knocking on a lot of doors. And uh, I thought I was you know, doing awesome. I was saving a ton of money. I was making a ton of money um, for a 19-year-old. And one day I was sitting on a Friday at, at Nathan's kitchen counter as he was writing me out kind of my commission check for that week or those two weeks. And I saw a couple $15,000, one with $17,000 checks on his table. And I said, well, what are those for? He said, well, those are from the real estate sales from yesterday that I had because he was also a real estate agent at Keller Williams Real Estate. I said, whoa, uh, tell me more. And so he quickly decided that I, if I could sell alarm systems, I would do great selling real estate. So kind of on a spur of a moment, said, all right, I'm going to get my real estate license. Didn't sleep for a couple of weeks, got my real estate license over an online and got into real estate. My marketing message from day one was your home sold guaranteed or I'll buy it. That happened to be October 2006 was when I got licensed, which happened to be the peak of the real estate market. So that was a good marketing message to have when the market was slowing down. So I started helping a lot of home sellers sell their home, take away the risk. And that also led to me stepping in and just buying their homes. So I was flipping homes. I was helping people sell their homes. I built a construction company to uh, handle the construction work of all the homes we were flipping. So that was all growing really, really fast. Bottom of the market comes along, you know, 2011. And uh, we say, hey, this is a great time to build a portfolio. Prices are at their bottom or at least close to it. You know, nobody knew for sure, but pricing was great, right? Let's, let's buy as much as we could, can. So that's when we started you know, bringing in investor capital, launching private investment funds, building a portfolio of scattered single family homes and multifamily buildings. And we bought some different commercial assets. We bought some land. We did a lot of things. And, you know, fast forward by 2014, we had six or 700 properties we owned and we had a hundred team members or employees and we were growing really fast and things were starting to become more significant in terms of size, more money was starting to come in. And we said, all right, what do we want to do now when we, when we grow up? And, you know, how do we, how do we take this business to the next level? 
guys like BlackRock and American Homes for Rent and you know Invitation Homes, they've scaled these single family platforms, but it's hard to do. And nobody had done it at that point. We we're like, man, this is a tough business, a scattered asset business. How can we scale more, more efficiently? And we landed on two ways to grow the organization. One was to focus on rental communities, mainly garden style multifamily communities as an owner and an operator. We didn't, I couldn't articulate it probably as well back then, but really we had been focused. Everything we were doing was around workforce housing and trying to figure out how to scale off that that focus and that that knowledge base. So one was to go after, instead of buying a house at a time, buying a 200-unit apartment community. And, and then the other way was we said, well, we could take our knowledge and our relationships and our capital and lend money to other guys you know, doing similar things to us. And at the time in 2014, there were very few private lenders out there. It's very hard to get access to capital. And we had a lot of relationships and a lot of knowledge. So we started a private lending business. And really, those have been our, our platforms over these last uh, six, seven years now. We've grown our real estate portfolio to about 12,000 rental homes that we currently have also sold a lot, but today about 12,000 uh, homes. And then we're lending actively across most, and we own in 22 states. And we're lending in you know close to 35 states. Uh, I think we're in 34 states today to guys flipping homes, building single-family portfolios, multi-family portfolios, and building new homes all across the, the country. And at the center of all that, you know, from my nonprofit kind of side, I have a foundation called the DLP Positive Returns Foundation. And we set out to, you know, make an impact on two big crises in America. And, and they are the crisis of affordable housing. You know, it's, it's getting worse by the day, the, the lack of affordable housing for most Americans. More than half of Americans spend more than 50% of their income, their gross income on their housing expenses. And the other big crisis that, that, that's out there is the jobs crisis. And, in fact, we're not losing jobs, in my opinion, to Mexico. We're losing jobs to technology, right? And and the only way, you know, a stat that I always come back to is that there's somewhere around 3 million cashiers in America, right? 3 million people whose job is to be a cashier, right? And we all can see at any of the stores we go to, right? You're needing less and less cashiers. It's getting more and more automated, right? So how do those people get repurposed? What do they what do, they do right? And I think the only, the only real solution is entrepreneurship, is small businesses. That's literally the only way you can create jobs. And um, and so we're really focused on from our foundation standpoint, but really that's what we do in our in our in our for-profit business while well, we we invest and make an impact in creating and preserving and, and improving workforce housing communities that and keeping them affordable for the local workforce. And then through our focus of what we do in terms of supporting entrepreneurs in our lending business. And then we invest equity with them and we help them scale their business. And that's what my book called Building an Elite Organization is all about, is implementing a disciplined approach to scaling a high growth, high profit business. So we help a lot of entrepreneurs who are investing in, in growing a real estate business, scale that business profitably in a disciplined manner, and in turn, create jobs and, and create jobs through their businesses, create jobs through the construction that they're, they're doing and the, the job creation that comes down the, the chain through, through that business. And it's really, really, really exciting. And kind of sum all that up. I mean, we've we've now, you know, we're a 410 person company today. We have 1.25 billion in, in assets. We're doing a few hundred million a year in revenue. And we've grown every year for the past uh, 15 years now by 60% or more every year. And that's what's really exciting to say, yeah, we're, we're a good sized company. And it's weird to hear somebody say, you know, a billion dollar company now today. But what's more exciting is we look and say, all right, the, at what we're doing today and the way we're executing for our company, the numbers start becoming really significant. And the amount of impact we can have becomes even even more significant over the years ahead. So it's, it's really, really exciting uh, times for, for sure. 
That's so awesome. I mean, there's so many different directions I want to go with this because (laughs) number one, uh, I've got a lot of experience in the single family home space in multifamily as well, but especially in single family homes, because I started a company with some friends. I was a capital partner on that. We scaled that. And so, you know, you're talking about like your portfolio. We worked with like Blackstone was one of our clients, you know, one of our original clients, the largest institutional owner of of single family homes. Same thing with American Homes for Rent and all these big groups that own 10,000 plus homes. There's a a big group here, Main Street Renewal out of of Austin. Um, That's also a big player. That's, you know, one of our top clients. And so, we know this space really well. I specifically know this space really well. So I love what you're doing. I love the model. But there's a difference here that I'd love to have you talk about. And that's that we would be the outsourced help to some of these large institutional companies. You in-house it, right? So that's a different way to do the business. And I'd love to have you speak on that. And then afterwards, I want to ask you about that 60% growth because I'm sure our listeners are dying to know how that's possible. Yeah. So, you know, in terms of the in-housing of our services, so, you know, part of our you know decision always to, you know, internalize, and I kind of covered a lot of it quick, but we've always kind of taken this approach of kind of internalizing, you know, the functions of executing on our, our investments. And, you know, in the beginning, I'd say a lot of the, the reason for it was, was kind of in, in part out of necessity. You know, we, we weren't in, you know, Boston, we weren't in Philadelphia, we weren't in a large market, we were in a lot in small markets in and around Lehigh Valley, Pennsylvania, and the Poconos and the suburbs of New Jersey and such and finding good vendors or resources in, in almost any regard was challenging. So a lot of cases, it was, you know, usually what happened, you know, in construction, it was, hey, we we're trying to find good vendors to count on and just couldn't find enough good vendors who could keep up with us that we felt we had no other choice. And that's kind of the way I, I like to think about things. Like when things are, when any side of our business is public facing to our client, I'm a huge advocate that we need to do that in-house. We need 100% control of it. If, it, if it's going to affect the experience with our client, I want 100% control of it. So an example, it's one of the reasons why we do all of our own loan servicing on our lending business is because I want, I don't want to originate a loan and then if somebody else service it, now my my borrowers having to deal with somebody who doesn't know them or care about them, or they're one of tens and thousands of loans of these large loan servicing companies who's not going to work with them. I want somebody in-house who's working with them, extending the relationship all the way through that that loan. But the backside of, of the organization, you know, kind of the back office of of a business that that the client never never sees or, or, or touches them, you know, generally we we prefer to outsource those functions if we can find good vendors, good partners that we can count on to do those services and just we found a number of points in our growth that we've just had to do that uh, ourselves. But we certainly have some some cases where we've been very successful. And as you are in larger markets, it's a little bit easier to do. Um, but in the when we were doing single family, it was such the infrastructure. You know, groups like yours weren't weren't around that we could count on that built that infrastructure that had scaled the platform that we could really outsource those types of uh, services to. And if we would have found found that ability, probably back then we may have grown even more in the scattered single family space because the value is just tremendous. Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, that, that's what we saw is like the, the big niche market is no one was doing it. Single family home rentals weren't even an asset class at the time. You know, it's something that became an asset class within the last 10 years, 11 yep. years. 
And so we saw this as a huge opportunity. These companies, they were good at acquisition, but they weren't good at in-housing anything. So, you know, short term, maybe it was like you could have gotten more homes, you could have done focus more on, on acquisition, but long term, it's probably better that you in-house it on many different levels. But like for our company, IFM Restoration, they're a big player in that institutional space because most of those companies do not want to in-house. And when they have, it's been disastrous. And yes. so they actually find that managing as big of portfolios that they have, and we're talking with some of these groups, 20,000 to uh, you know, uh, 50,000 to 82,000 is the largest single family home portfolio. And uh, you know that's owned by Blackstone, and so that that's just tough to manage all that. So they really have to outsource, but to a lot of different vendors. And so that was huge for our company, and we were able to scale incredibly fast because no one was doing it. Yep. You know, in the in the apartment space, it was really easy to have like one on site person that could service all these units. But when you have homes scattered all across a city. That's tough. And then you're in multiple cities. You don't have any locations next to each other. And then you've got stuff in the city, in the suburbs. You've got stuff in multiple cities and major markets all across the US. So it was huge for us to figure out how to be able to do that scale. And we were able to build a proprietary software on top of it. That is one of the main reasons why we were able to get our Series A funding by S3 Ventures, the largest Texas VC group. So pretty, pretty cool. I want to dig in though a little bit more here. Because Don, you had talked about 60% growth year over year for 15 years. And this is unheard of. I don't know anyone else who's ever done this. And it's, it's really interesting because anyone who knows systems or wants to scale and wants to have it, you know, a lot more of a, a process, more programmable, you kind of hear, Gino Wickman and Traction and EOS. And I know that this is common vernacular, right? Inside of the world of business. But I just want to give a major shout out to you and what you've built in your book because I don't know that any other business is doing what you're doing. So I'd love to have you talk about how you've had this growth. Yeah, uh, thank you. And so one of the best ways to, you know, look for look at fastest growing companies, only, you know, consistent way, you know, kind of compare and engage that I've seen is, you know, the Inc. 5000 list and, you know, they measure every year 5000 fast growing companies and they measure that growth over a 3-year period of time. So our average 3-year growth if you choose any 3-year period for the past 15 years would be between 300 to 500%. So we'll never be, you know, top 100 fastest growing companies, but we stay on that list every year. We've been on the list since we've been large enough to be on the list, this is our will be our ninth straight year, and that means it's measuring over the last twelve years of our growth. We're the last year we were the fourth fastest growing company in America that's made the Inc. Five Thousand list five or more times ever. We're on the list eight straight years, so it's the consistency that's uh, not common. Fast growth is common, but consistency over year it's it's very hard. Um, and like most companies, over long periods of time, our company's changed a lot. We've grown geographically. We've grown into new business lines. We've you know, changed our focus, gone through multiple cycles, et cetera, um, but kept that, that same discipline. And, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, Gino Wickman, consider uh, Gino a friend and, and his system, EOS Traction was definitely a, a big part. You know, I've always been, as I know you are as well, a huge avid reader. And, you know, I, I mainly listen to books today, but I listen to three or four books every week. And, you know, I'm a huge Jim Collins fan and John Maxwell and a lot of these great, you know, thought leaders. But, you know, Gino came along and I'm a big Vern Harnish fan and such. But Gino was the first guy to really come along that, that really kind of dialed it into a system 
that I think the average frontline kind of director in a company could really understand and it could make sense and be plug and play. And that was powerful for us. And we, you know, we implemented it EOS, you know, nine, 10 years ago into our, into our business. And I was, when I first listened to the book, um, I was so, you know, inspired by it. I mean, I went and became an implementer through his online kind of base camp program and did the self-implementation in our company and was full steam. And then what we realized is, you know, at our pace of growth and the diversity of being in multiple businesses all growing at the same time and such, there was just a number of things that we needed to kind of, that, that weren't included in the system, right? There wasn't enough focus on, you know, on marketing and sales. There wasn't enough kind of thinking through the strategy of multiple business lines. And then there was just was missing some of the, the actual tools we needed to put the ideas fully into, into action and make them work at the pace we were growing at. So all of a sudden what happened was we were running, you know, part of EOS's system. And then we implemented concepts from four disciplines of execution, which I'm a big fan of from uh, Sean Covey and concepts from Vern Harnish and concepts from John Maxwell and, and many other great leaders and and built many custom tools and a lot of testing. And we had all we have all these different business lines that we were able to use as guinea pigs and kind of testing what works and how you drive accountability, how you drive consistency, how you build discipline through the organization, how you get, you know, results again and again and, you know, have developed you know, it quickly became we were running our own system. And uh, so a number of years ago, we, we uh, started referring to our system as uh, the Elite Execution System, EES. And, and that's what I wrote a book on recently called Building an Elite Organization. And we've been running this system across our businesses now for many years, but we've also been helping the real estate borrowers or operators that we lend to and invest equity with. We actually help them implement the Elite execution system into their businesses as well. And we do a few live events every year. We do full mastermind workshop events and we're helping them implement some of the discipline around growing their business, discipline around you know hiring and developing leadership, retaining the best people, discipline around communication and running meetings and and discipline around you know a clear acceleration strategy, you know, sales and marketing uh, working together, just dealing with all the complexities and challenges of growing a business fast and profitable. And that's a big important note, right? Because in the world of real estate, especially over the last decade, a lot of the, the big cover stories out there are companies like, you know, Zillow or Open Door or OfferPad or, or these, you know, tech-based companies that are growing fast, but certainly aren't growing profitable. And, you know, I don't have the advantage. I didn't have, you know, venture money where I could burn and, and not need to make money and, and needing to grow a business that's both scaling consistently and profitable is much, much harder than when you can do it without profit as a as a criteria. And I think, you know, for those of us who are listening, who listen to podcasts, like your great podcast here, I read lots of books, you know, you listen to one book and they tell you, all you need to be successful is the right management practices. In other books, it's all about leadership. In another, it's all about having great checklists. In another one, it's all about, you know, execution. In another one, it's all about, you know, content marketing. And, you know, and you listen to this one book and you try to go focus on implementing that in your business and you might improve that area, but it doesn't generate good, consistent growth as profitable. You need, the way we think about it, every organization has four quadrants, strategy, people, operations, and acceleration. And acceleration, again, is sales and marketing. All four of those quadrants have to grow together a part of one plan in order for you to have consistent growth, you know, day in and day out. And, you know, general, we find entrepreneurs and discipline are two words that are often thought of as opposites. And certainly in the world of real estate entrepreneurs, that's, that's the case. And putting a disciplined thought, disciplined action, and disciplined people in place 
is a hard thing to do, but it's, and it's a significant transitional point to go from being a successful entrepreneur running a million dollar or $3 million a year business to being able to grow a $50 million, $100 million business. It takes that level of, of discipline. And, you know, that's what we've uh, been, you know, perfecting and, and working on this past uh, decade. And, you know, what we're really excited about uh, helping, you know, other great entrepreneurs build that discipline and build that structure and scale their business, hopefully even faster, uh, more successful than we've been able to scale DLP. That's awesome. And and it's so true, right? Like some companies do get lucky and they scale. But at a certain point, luck is going to run out and it has to be a lot more process driven. And uh, you're so right that like you can't have one of the legs uneven with the other. Like they each need to grow. Otherwise, your business is going to get a little funky. You know, if you try and grow sales too much and you don't have the funnels and, and the protocol to be able to handle it, it's going to, it's going to really mess with you. I mean, this happened to us. It was basically like, you know, when we started working with some of these institutional players at IFM Restoration, it was like they turned on a fire hose and we were trying to drink out of it and we're just flying backwards. I mean, it, it was crazy and we couldn't handle it. And we're like, we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. And it was nuts. It was nuts for the longest time. And growth is like that, where you have to be able to make some quick decisions on the fly. But when you really can scale, it's by building in that time to proactively make decisions, not reactively make decisions. When all you're doing is reacting, it's really hard to have a plan and have a process to be able to do it. So I get that you know, your, your strategy and your structure works. And at the end of the day, having any strategy and any structure is better than none. But if you can find one that is proven like yours, that's incredible. And I think it's really fun. The last time we connected, you and I were both like, frantically trying to get this book done and we're juggling <laughs> all these things. And it's like, I need to do another review of the book and make sure that the print copy looks like what the, you know, what other copy looks like. And it's so funny. Like you put a book out. I can't tell you how many times I read through this thing and how many people I had proofread it. There's always mistakes. <laughs> it's the craziest thing. I don't know if you experienced that too, but oh, it's yeah. just nuts. But it, it is to have a book in the world and to get the feedback that people give of this changed my life, this changed my business, this whole mindset shift is revolutionary to me. And I know you're getting this and you may get it on a personal level. I know you're getting it on the entrepreneurial or business level, just as I'm getting it very often on a personal level uh, and you know, periodically on the business level. But most people are kind of internalizing it. What's that like? Can you share what it's like kind of having your, your ideas in the world? I mean, it's because to me, it's kind of like you're a little naked. You shared all this stuff. All these people come up and they know stuff about you. And it's like, wait, how would you know that? Oh yeah, I put it in the book. <laughs> T- tell me about that. It is. It's pretty cool. So you know, so my my book, you know, building the organization. It's not uh, formally out yet. It actually, the official launch date is April six. But um, but we did a you know a soft launch, I guess you'd say, where we uh, printed somewhere around ten thousand books and and we distributed them at a big event we did a couple months ago. And we've been providing them out to, you know, candidates that we're interviewing to come in the company. We've distributed them out to our employees, to our clients at Christmas time, et cetera. So they've been out there. There's, you know, thousands of them out now. And yeah, it's been really, really interesting. I was, I was, you know, the first craziest part, I think the book process that struck me is, you know, I was at the the event I did, which was in November, a few months back, you know, very first day of this event, somebody comes up to me, actually a young, young girl, high school girl, who's a uh, a daughter of one of my investors 
she says she's our number one fan and she, you know, follows us intently and she wants to, you know, she's interned with us and she's just super passionate and young entrepreneur. And she was the first, interesting enough, she says she's my number one fan and her sister works for me and so forth. And, and she came up to me, first chance she got, she was the first round of people ever getting the book. Uh, and she comes up to me to sign the book, right? And I had never thought about what I was going to write inside the book. Like I'd never once thought about it. And it was like a surreal moment, like I'm signing, you know, a book. So that was pretty cool. You know, of course, it's going to happen. But now all these people get the book and like, wait a second, people are actually reading it, like, and actually paying attention and taking notes. And like, so I was interviewing a gentleman today who was, you know, coming in for a called director level seat, never spoken to the gentleman before. He'd interview with a couple of people in my company and he was reciting feedback from the book and had read the entire book already. And, you know, my book is, it's, it's pretty heavy. It's 280 pages. It's, it's, it's a book for, you know, leaders, executives, owners of companies. It's a, it's a blueprint. It's, it's a heavy, dense blueprint to, to scaling a high growth business. It's not a light read. And uh, this gentleman had read the whole book already and had a, a bunch of questions and had things highlighted and was talking about how impactful it was. And he already gave it to his, you know, uncle who owns a company and his uncle wants to meet, you know, and it was just like, and that's just an example just from a, a couple hours ago. And it, it's just such a, such a cool moment, such a cool thing to hear that kind of feedback. I had, uh, had the pleasure of having Jim Collins. He was my first go-to to get to write the foreword. And unfortunately he didn't, but fortunately... Uh, our mutual friend Hal Elrod wrote the foreword for the book, which is pretty cool. Who I'm a huge fan of, and I've been we've been uh, running the Miracle Morning here in our company. I've been running it personally for many years, but but anyway, Jim Collins did not write my foreword, but he wrote me a handwritten note back and said he you know read the whole book and how powerful it was, and you know that was such a cool moment because I'm you know I'm a huge Jim Collins nerd and just think he's so you know the the thought leader. And getting feedback from guys like Gina Wickman was super cool, who kind of invented this space, you could say, and and kind of first to kind of systematize and such. So it's been a really cool, surreal experience for sure. Uh, been, been a lot of fun. That's awesome. That's so cool. And I love that Hal was able to write that for you. And it was really funny because uh, when I was uh, meeting with your team, they were talking about how they do these miracle mornings. And I was like, <laughs> so are you, are you talking about like the miracle morning, like the book? And they're like, yeah. And I said, oh. Well, I'm I'm best friends <laughs> with Hal Elrod, the author. You know, you, would you guys want to have him? You know, join you for one of your miracle mornings? It, it was just so funny how just everything plays out and the connections that you have and when people enter each other's lives and how interconnected we all are. I just think it is so it is. cool, uh, just how it all works. It's awesome. So, I one of the things that I love about what you do in your culture is you're very dreams and goals oriented, not just on the business side of things, which that's very good. That's you know your EES framework. But you do it on the personal side with the employees and even with some of the vendors and subcontractors, anyone that you would consider team and family. Can you speak on that? Yeah, I'd love to. And you know, you you hit it earlier. You you know, you said, you know, having a, a system to follow or having, you know, a strategy or a plan, you know, anything, right, is a step forward for, for most people, right? And it's, you know, that saying that a small percentage, I don't know the exact stat, I don't know if anybody knows, but you know, only a small percentage of Americans have clear goals, right? And and even tinier percentage have them written down, right? And it's like just doing that basic process of writing down goals, you know, the difference it's gonna make in your life is is tremendous, right? And it's just amazing and to me that that how few have never really done that. Have ever really set personal goals. Have never really thought thought through it in in a full way. So 
you know, I'm a, a member of an organization that you're a member of, I believe now as well, Tiger 21. And I've been a member a long time. And just a few months ago, I was asked, you know, the guy who runs my chapter, which is in Palm Beach, Florida, he said, Don, you know, can you come present on something at the next meeting? And he said, can you talk, come present a little bit on like, you know, goal setting and such? I know you're really good at that. Can you come present on it? I said, sure. So I came in. I was a little, to be honest, I was a little like, I don't know these guys. I mean, these are guys worth, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. You know, they're generally older. Like, are they really going to get value out of this? Like, I don't know. So, so I came in and I sent the materials over to, to George, who runs my chair before, and he was so impressed by it. He included a bunch of the head people from Tiger 21 who then joined in the meeting. And I got such rave reviews. I've helped many uh, Tiger 21 members now help implement this in their company. And they had never done this before and just thought it was such a big deal. And what it is, is, you know, so we have a core value here in our company called Living Fully. And um, when people first join us, they think it, you know, just marketing materials or just, you know, it just sounds good to recruit people, but are shocked that it's really what we we do. And down to, you know, every every quarter in our organization, similar to, you know, US, we run our rocks and, you know, we require every person to have three professional and three personal rocks. And we hold them accountable to their personal rocks, just like their professional rocks. And that's mind blowing to people. And we, we go through uh, twice a year and at minimum, we make have everybody do it once a year. But most people go through it twice a year. We go through a process of life assessment and we built kind of a tool where we go through and we assess our lives. And we call it the eight F's of life, with our, which are uh, faith, family, friends, finance, fitness, freedom, fulfillment, and fun. And so we have a number of, you know, kind of grading questions to, to grade yourself in each of those eight areas of your life. And then based on those answers and how you rate yourself, it gives you a score of what we call your wheel of life. And it, it, it shows you, you know, kind of how you're performing in each of those eight areas. And, and what I think is, you know, real success and real fulfillment comes from, you know, being successful in all areas of your life at the, at the same time. And, and often fulfillment and success is more about how you feel about your life than, than anything else. And, and so when you can feel that you're making progress in all areas of your life at the same time, that's, that's, that's really, really empowering. And, I think a lot of people who are doing great in different areas of life, they're not kind of setting goals enough and recognizing enough where they're not getting the joy of of improving because they're not really paying attention to it. They're not conscious to it. And then certainly the other side is, you know, people are are falling off in certain areas of life and they're moving so fast and running so hard, they're not even realizing it. And, you know, I had a, a situation maybe five years ago now where I had a one of my, you know, really hardworking, dedicated, great employees who had a heart attack. And that employee was working really, really hard. And I don't know for sure. It turned out he had some other issues as well. But I felt like that heart attack may have been caused because he was working so hard for me. And I was like, man, I never want to be in a situation where somebody dies or, you know, on my clock because they're so dedicated to DLP. They're working so hard. They're not taking care of themselves. And, you know, so so not taking care of their fitness or I don't want to be the cause of team members having a divorce or, you know, not having the right relationship with their children. So we drive this focus of living fully throughout our whole organization, going through this life assessment process. And after they assess their life, we go through this unique process of setting goals around each of those eight areas of your life. And we first walk them through a process of setting any goals, just letting your mind go and think big, think open, forget about any limitations. And then once they do that, then we help them lay out what we call the living fully dashboard, which is to take your top 10 or 12 goals. And generally, it's one or two goals around each of those eight areas of your life for the next year. And set, make them smart, make them specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, and timely, and then track your progress all year. And just that, that little effort of setting a goal around each of those areas of your life and making progress each month is just incredibly you know, powerful, 
new and, and different for most people that have never done it before. And then, you know, we do every year, we have a living fully day. We take a whole day and we step out. And now we have out, outside experts who come in. We're doing things like Miracle Morning. We do a lot of these things about our organization, such as we pay for everybody in the company who wants to read and learn. We pay for Audible accounts. They can download as many books as they want. We do a Driven for Greatness meeting every other week where we actually choose a book that we read as a company and a different frontline team member leads that discussion, gets people thinking about personal development and engaging with other motivated, driven people, changing and framing their thinking. We pay for Beachbody on demand for those who want to work out. We buy people Fitbits. You know, we do a lot of things just just in pushing this culture of of improvement and fulfillment and and living fully and and we try to lead that I try to lead that and for my seat and the rest of our senior leaders and you know I'm head coach of both of my kids sports and I'm definitely a better father than I am a CEO and I'm I don't know if I'm a better husband my wife will have to say that but you know I work really hard at it and and you know I focus on a leader in my church as much as I'm a leader in my work and and so forth and you know we when people see that and see it's real within within our organization the impact we can have now with 400 plus employees and then their families and their extended families it's a really really cool thing and now we've started bringing in our clients and investors to be a part of a lot of this as well and 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 it's been you know really really cool so yeah but it's it's a big part of what what's important to me and what drives our culture at, at DLP that's awesome. And you know, it's it's so interesting because you've got an incredible life. You're a family man. You coach your kids' sports. You're a husband. You're, you know, I mean, you, you're wearing so many hats. You know, you're running all these companies and you have all these investors. You have so many people that, you know, are kind of in your pipeline, in your ecosystem. And you don't have to do any of this. Like, Financially, you don't have to do a thing, but I love that at the foundation of everything is your faith. It's one of the first things that you mentioned. I know that ties in with the charity that you do. I'd love for you to even talk about that because I think the charity work you're doing yourself, not just the money, but the time that your employees are all spending doing it is incredible. And I would imagine that's got to be one of the drivers, one of the things that gives you purpose because you don't have to work. You've got a killer life. You could go travel the world and you still travel the world, but you don't have to do all this and you are. So I'd love to hear why. Yeah, thank you. I just so I'll start with the, you know, kind of the foundation and the philanthropic side. So as an organization, you know, we have a giving policy, three parts to it. One is we give 1% of our time. So we provide all team members the ability to take off, uh, you know, which works out to be three days to give to, you know, we organize things as a company, but they can go and work in whatever they're passionate about. But we encourage them to give their time. We give one quarter percent of our revenue uh, to our foundation. And we give a quarter percent of all of our capital we raise to our foundation. So, you know, as we're growing, that's that's becoming very significant dollars. And so our foundation is focused around two main crises I mentioned a little bit before, the affordable housing crisis and the jobs crisis. And we're working to, to make an impact in those areas in, in a number of ways. And it's also one of the reasons I actually wrote the book. You know, I wrote the, the book for, for three main purposes. One was for our own employees and our own leaders to, to fully be able to understand the system in a, in a clear, concise way. Second was to provide it to you know, entrepreneurs and business owners, especially those that we work with and we lend capital to invest with, and but for all entrepreneurs. And the third was, uh, was to provide it and help make an impact for the nonprofit uh, organizations we work with who need the help in growing 
their company, which they often don't think of it as a company, even more so than for-profit businesses. And we wanted to make sure that any organizations that we partner with and we work with, that we were really making an impact above and beyond just giving money. So we've been helping a number of uh, ministries that we work with implement you know, lead execution system into their business. And so while we're providing them with capital and our time and so forth, we're also helping them, you know, scale the impact they make in their their, their organization. And then one of the other things that's been interesting, you know, for me, and one th- biggest thing that drives me is, you know, we've been working on this foundation and realizing you know, all this great impact we can have in our in our foundation and from our nonprofit side. And, you know, we're going to be at a point here in a, in a very short period of time where we're giving millions a year to the foundation, which is great. And that's a lot of money. But when I look at the other side and say, well, in our for-profit business, you know, we're already now at the place, we're doing hundreds and hundreds of millions a year, right? And soon we're going to be doing billions and billions a year in revenue. And, and, and you look at it and say, wow, the impact we can make in our for-profit business is significantly greater than the impact we're ever going to make on the, the nonprofit side. And, and so we've been really taking a lot of time being thoughtful in our organization, realizing how do we make the biggest impact in our for-profit business? And we've really embraced the concept of, you know, impact investing and really focusing on making sure in every dollar we invest that we're, we're making an impact on those two crises of jobs and housing in our businesses. And, and, and does, you don't have to anymore like it used to be, hey, you, you, you invest your money to make a profit and then you give your money away to the causes that you're passionate about. Yes, that's still there. But you can invest your money into a company or an opportunity that can impact the causes you're passionate for and do a much bigger impact because they're generating a positive return, which means the money can keep being used again and again and again. So we're really focused on, you know, a lot of multifamily operators, as an example, the, the business model for sophisticated, smart, institutional multifamily operators has been, hey, you buy an apartment community, put $30,000 into the apartment and jack up rents 500 bucks. And that makes great sense and, and from a financial standpoint. But then all of a sudden you take this apartment that was affordable, it was $900 a month or $1,000 a month, and you just took it out of the affordability pool. And yes, you can make a nice profit doing that, but we're big believers that we want to preserve this affordability uh, pool. There's a, a shrinking amount of affordability. Um, and we're focused on is, is owning rental communities where our cost, our rent, our, our, the cost of housing for that for our residents is less than 30% of their income. That's the amount that the average working, you know, whether we're talking a nurse or a police officer or, you know, frontline t- uh, worker can really afford and still be able to take care of their kids and put a little money away and so forth. When 50% of their income is going to cover their rent or their housing expenses, they just simply can't. So we're focusing on on investing in these communities. Certainly, we're generating great profits, and our you know anybody who invests with us will tell you and look at where our profits have been. But you can do that while being focused on making a tremendous impact, not just through keeping safe, affordable housing, but also through the social impact we can do. And that's you know some of the cool tie-ins like with our bank, we want to start putting setting up accounts for all of our residents. One of our cool things with the bank and putting away a little bit of their rent every month for them that they get to use later for education or job advancement or things like that. And we're doing on-site, you know, career training and education and health awareness at our communities. And there's a lot of things that we can make a real difference from a social standpoint and an environmental standpoint as well. There's a lot of impacts we can make with the the size and scope. And we have 30,000 people living in our properties today. That's going to be a couple hundred thousand people in the very near future. And thinking of the amount of people we can impact. One of the coolest things we did through our foundation is we now have a Bible in every one of our apartments. And that was a cool initiative say, hey, when somebody, you know, when somebody's really hurting and really needs the Lord, they're not going to go out and get a Bible at that time, right? It's having it there that when they're going through something really tough, 
And a lot of people going through some really tough times this past year that it's, it's there when, when they need it. And little, you know, little things like that, you start looking at scale and say, man, the impact we can make through little decisions like that is pretty cool. Yeah, that is just outstanding. And it's one of the reasons why I'm such a big fan of your company from the, you know, the work that you're doing, even from like the investor standpoint, there are so many places that someone can invest their money, but when you can invest it in an organization that's doing so much good, it just feels right. So thank you for your leadership and paving the way and all these initiatives that are not commonplace and quite frankly could cost you money. But you're doing it because that's what's in people's best interest. I think that's incredible. Thank you. Where can our listeners uh, learn more about you? Yeah. Uh, so you can go to dlpcapital.com or you can go to dlpelite.com. Either basically get you the same place. But the Elite brand is our brand for our book and podcast and so forth. And uh, DLP Capital is our main uh, kind of parent business. But uh, you can go to either locations and uh, learn a little bit more about us. We have a link on dlpelite.com to a bunch of free resources as well to a lot of the tools and trainings and actual kind of execution uh, pieces to our elite execution system. So you know whether you read the book or not, there'll be some great tools to help you scale your business, including our life assessment and goal setting tool that I was talking about earlier. You can download there for free. So, so yeah, dlpelite.com, dlpcapital.com. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much. And uh, I mean, this all of this that you're sharing is the reason why I'm such a huge supporter and fan, why our mastermind, there are so many members that are active investors. So thank you for all that you do. And, and to all of our listeners, I want to challenge you again to take some form of action today. Just take one step in the direction of financial freedom and living a life by design, not a life by default. And so I challenge you to make your move. Even if it's a small move, those small moves add up. And over time, it will be a big move. So thanks for listening. And we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Lifestyle Investor Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. You can also leave an honest rating and review over on iTunes. Not only do I read every single one, but it also helps me understand what content matters the most to our audience. And if you can think of one or two people who could benefit from this episode, would you share it with them right now? Who knows? Maybe they'll buy you something nice when they make their first million. If you would like access to today's show notes, including links to all the resources mentioned, visit www.justindonald.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again for listening. And I'll catch you next week for another episode of The Lifestyle Investor.